We're back from a week away on vacation, and one of the things that I was reminded after spending time as a family is that little kids like to ask a lot of questions, like a lot of questions, and questions that as adults, we're not often ready or thinking about them in ways that little kids are to, 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 answer, to answer, give answers to. And sometimes those questions come at really inopportune times, right? Where the question is asked, it's genuine curiosity, they're trying to figure out their world, but there's a question about the human body that is asked very loudly in the middle of a public change room. You know, they want to know. That's the moment they thought of it. Everybody else knows that that question's been asked as well, too, now, right? But there's other times where the questions that they ask, you know, we could have answers to some of these questions. There's other ones where they ask a question, and as an adult, you're like, I never thought of that before. I've just taken that for granted. Like the question, why do you have to say thank you? Okay, well, because it's polite is the answer that came to my mind, but that seemed to be lacking. You know, have you ever thought about that? Why do you have to say thank you without saying because it's polite? Give that a thought for a little bit. You know, the only reason why kids ask these questions is because they're trying to wrap their head around the world, right? They're trying to figure out their experience and, 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 and how, how does this whole thing make sense and to learn and to grow. And, and if you just spend a little bit of time listening to little kids ask these questions, you realize that questions can be a very beautiful and maddening thing at the same time, right? Because the questions can help us think about things that maybe we haven't thought about otherwise or things that we just haven't entertained before. Well, this summer, as we come into our summer teaching series, we are beginning this morning a, a series called Questions That God Asks, Questions God Asks. And we're going to be looking at some of the questions that God asks that we find in the Old Testament. And as we go through this series, I think what we're going to find is we're going to find ourselves encountering God asking some really good questions that should cause us to stop and say, I haven't thought about that before, or you know, make, it cause us to reflect on our lives in a new or a different sort of way. And so this morning, we're going to, to look at a question that invites us to think about our relationship to or our relationship with God as God asked the question, where are you in Genesis chapter 3? Where are you? Now, before we get into this passage, I, I, I want to briefly acknowledge that whenever we start preaching on the first couple of chapters of the book of Genesis, it can be a little bit dicey at points, okay? It can be difficult. We talked about this a few weeks ago when we did some questions about uh, the Holy Spirit, and I just, sort of, I just wanted to admit that this is one of those things where you could put a bunch of Christians in the same room, and the way that they read the same passages of Scripture can be different. And that can be an uncomfortable thing for some of us, but I think that we need to acknowledge it. And the question tends to be is, how are we supposed to interpret, read and interpret Genesis chapter 1 through 11? That is, you know, the creation account through to the Tower of Babel. How are we supposed to read these? And some Christians read these, these chapters of Scripture, and they understand it as this is a literal account of what happened, including a literal description of how God created the universe. And these people really love Jesus, and they want to serve Jesus with their entire being. And then there are other Christians who also really love Jesus and also want to serve Jesus with their entire being, and they read these exact same chapters, and they say, wait, I'm not so sure that we're supposed to read and understand this as a literal description of what actually happened. And they would point out to some that there are some good reasons why maybe you aren't supposed to take it as a literal interpretation of what actually happened. But they would still have this really high view of Scripture acknowledging its authority in our lives because you know what it does? 
These pages point us to God and invite us into relationship with God and invite us to get to know God. Now, this is a vastly oversimplification of very complex theological debate, okay? I acknowledge that, but I just wanted to kind of put that out there because when we read what we're going to read this morning, one of the temptations is to try to read it and to have it explain for us some, in, some really fine details about how and why things are the way that they are. And while you can try to read the Bible that way, I think we can get stuck and we can miss out on some other things. And so we're going to try to avoid that this morning. Instead, what almost everybody can agree on, regardless of whether you read it literally or you read it a little bit less than literally, is that there are some timeless truths that can be drawn out of these pages of Scripture that teach us about who God is, that teach us about his relationship with creation, his relationship with people like us, and about how we can live in a relationship with God uh, and with one another. And so our passage this morning is from Genesis chapter 3. And Genesis chapter 3 is the story of Adam and Eve, how they are tempted to sin, how they do sin, and the consequences of their sin. And while on one level we might want to look at this as the historic starting point of sin, I'm going to invite us to recognize that, you know, there's more going on here than just a single event. Rather, in a real sense, what we're reading today is something that continues to be a part of our lives today. And so we're going to read the first uh, seven verses of Genesis chapter 3 to begin this morning. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat, uh, eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. We'll continue reading and get to the question in just a, in a couple minutes here. You know, right from the beginning of Scripture, we, uh, this passage from Scripture, we, we meet a serpent who ha- appears to be the tool of Satan or, or the devil. And he's a tool there to tempt Eve and, and also tempt Adam. Now, this is one of those times where this Bible passage doesn't answer all the questions that we might have when we read a Bible passage like this. For, for example, when exactly does evil come about in God's creation? You know, we can piece together some theories from other passages of Scripture, but the open passages of Genesis, uh, chapters of Genesis, don't tell us that detail. Rather, when we read this, it appears as though evil is already present, it's just there. It's a question that we might want to answer, but it doesn't, it doesn't answer it for us. Or this one, and this one's by far more interesting to me. The snake talks, okay? The snake talks, and Eve doesn't seem to be bothered by it. She's just like, okay, talking snake, sure. So what about the other animals? Do they talk too? Do we have a Narnia or a Disney situation going on here? That's what I want to know. But the text doesn't answer that question for us either. Now, as interesting 
as it might be to have these questions answered, I think it's intentional that we don't know the answers. Because they might turn into details that cause us to lose sight on the big picture, the story, that, and how it can connect with us today. Now, the passage in this, the snake in this passage is a tool of Satan. And you know what? We don't generally talk a whole lot about Satan, but for those of us who are followers of Jesus, we need to recognize that, that Jesus very much took seriously that there, were, there was the reality that there are evil spiritual forces at work in our world, and Satan is one of those evil spiritual forces, perhaps the chief of those evil spiritual forces. And so this story reminds us of the influence that spiritual forces can have on us, while at the same time, Reminding us that we are responsible for our own actions. Now, as we look at this passage, we'll notice that the snake starts by asking a question. The snake says, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the purpose behind this question is to to sow, uh, plant a seed of doubt about God's goodness. It's to say, is God really good? Is, does God really have your best intentions in mind? Is God withholding something from you? It, it, it's a subtle approach. It's not an in-your-face approach. approach. He's not an obvious threat. He's this little snake on the ground. It's not an obvious threat. But he just plants this tiny doubt in the form of a question. Now, Satan had made it sound like God didn't want them to eat from any tree that was in the garden. And rightfully, Eve recognizes that, no, that's not, that there was only, there's one tree that God is concerned about. But in the rest of what Eve says, we can tell that she has begun to question God's goodness. See, God told them to not eat from that tree. Eve takes it further and says, yeah, not only are we not supposed to eat from that tree, we're not even supposed to touch that tree. It's a subtle difference, but it starts to help us understand that Eve is buying into this lie that maybe God isn't as good or that God is being restrictive or that God is controlling, which opens the door for what comes next. See, the serpent goes on to then more openly question God's integrity and God's motives. He tells them, you know what, God has lied to you. If you eat that, you're not going to die. You're not going to die. Go ahead and eat it. You'll be fine. He's not telling you the truth. In fact, if you go ahead and eat that, you you know why God doesn't want you to eat that? Because you'll become like him. God is actually withholding something good for you. He's holding back your ability to reach your full potential. And so the snake is describing God as being selfish or uh, insecure and withholding. Now, as a reader, we would hope that that Eve has had enough experience with God to be able to brush off what what seems to be a fairly obvious lie because it doesn't match with what she knew to be true. You know, so far in the process of creation, God has not been withholding. He's been generous. He's been gracious. He's been giving good gifts. You can have all of this, God says. But this can be like our own experience with temptation. And this story reminds us that we can be influenced to exchange what is good for empty promises. We can be influenced to exchange what is good for empty promises. 
And you know what? We would like to think that we are smart enough to see through uh, half-truths and false promises. But the reality is that when somebody dangles something that looks really good in front of us, we can kind of forget about the fact that it might not be true. It could be too good to be true. It captures our attention. And we can really struggle to give in, even if it means compromising our integrity, doing what we know we shouldn't do. In our text this morning, Eve started to envision something for herself that she wanted. The text tells us that she saw that the fruit looked good, that it looked nice, and that it would be good for eating, and it would give her what she wanted. It would give her this wisdom. In other words, she became infatuated by it. And this infatuation led to her buying into the idea that maybe God is holding back. Maybe God is holding something good back from her and from Adam. You know, one of our realities that we live in is that we are surrounded by voices that every day invite us to buy into a vision of what the good life looks like. We see it in movies, we see it in advertising, we see it in our social media feeds, these pictures of perfect-looking people with, you know, they're on wonderful vacations, they, their houses have been wonderfully renovated, they've got nice stuff, and their, their kids all seem to get along and look perfect. And as much as we, you know, in our minds would say, hey, that's advertising, that's social media, that's, you know, that's just the product of somebody trying to manipulate me, the reality is that's really difficult not to want that. And we can find ourselves going all in and pursuing this vision of what life ought to look like. And the reality is that pursuing this vision of life uh, requires that we trade in what God says life is all about. That we can trade in what is good for these empty promises. Now Adam and Eve, they, they do eat the fruit and immediately things change. But not in the way that they were hoping. They did it in a way, achieve some higher level of enlightenment, but what they got, they weren't equipped to deal with. Suddenly, and you can almost hear a pane of glass shattering, suddenly the way that they saw themselves, the way they saw the world was completely different because their innocent experience of innocence and purity was broken and they became aware of evil and shame and it completely changed them. And they suddenly become aware of their nakedness. And while they may have been literally naked, nakedness in this is more than just a lack of clothing. It represents innocence. It represents trust. It represents vulnerability. It was everything that they had enjoyed uninhibited with God and with one another suddenly was no longer possible. Suddenly there was this level of shame that just kept them, was holding them back and made them feel terribly insecure and like they needed to run away. And the reaction was to do their best to cover up. Now you'll have to forgive me if I've told this story before because it's entirely possible that I had, I have. But when I was a child, I have this memory of my mom buying apricots and bringing this apricots home. Can somebody tell me if I've told this story before? I mean, it's been almost four years. At some point, the stories are just starting to start coming up the same. I've only got so many of them. Anyways, okay, new story, good. All right, so my mom bought this bag of apricots and put a bunch of apricots, and she put them on the counter. She said, don't touch them. We're going to eat them as a family. And me, as a, as a child, I'm staring at these apricots, and I'm thinking, oh, they look so good. I, what's going to hurt if I just take one bite? And so I reach up, and I grab an apricot, and I take a bite. And in the moment of taking a bite, I'm thinking, what did I do? Like, how am I going to cover this up? 
And so my best attempt was actually to take this apricot, turn it so the bite was to the back of the counter, put it back on the counter, and then walk away. But at the same time realizing this isn't going to work out because it's not going to take much for somebody to pick up that apricot and turn around and see that a bite's taken out of. And I'm the only one that can reach the counter, so it's clearly me. You know, the story of Adam and Eve and their attempt to try to, to cover up using fig leaves, that story reminds us that our best attempt to cover up our sin can feel pretty flimsy. Like at any moment, we're going to be found out. And my, my suspicion is that many of us understand that sort of feeling of that fear of, of, some, of being found out, that somebody's going to see through our best attempt to try to cover up, to try to make ourselves respectable and, and, and look the way that we're supposed to look, that we have had that experience of being afraid that we're going to be found out. And that fear can start to call the shots in our lives. It can start to influence the decisions that we make. It can start to influence the relationships that we have with other people. And the result of this is what the Bible calls death. And you know what? This is what God said was going to be the consequence to Adam and Eve. Like, they weren't supposed to eat this because death was going to be a consequence. And if we keep reading Genesis chapter 3, we, we recognize that, that, that physical mortality was a consequence of their actions. But that's actually just a small part of what changed. There's the death of innocence. There's the death of purpose and clarity. There's, there's a death of, in terms of relational and spiritual intimacy with God and with others. Life becomes a struggle. And that's the result of choosing to be, you know, of following this, being enamored by this thing that looks like it's too good to be true and following that. Let's keep reading. we read a couple more verses here. Verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden at the, in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? All right, we're just going to stop there this morning. We, as a family, were away. We, went, we spent a better part of a week at a campground, and there was one evening where the kids were, were busy playing, and I said to Michelle, I said, hey, we've never done this before, but let's leave the kids here, and let's go for a walk. It's just a small little loop. And we did it, and it was wonderful. It was as if the kids were fine, we were fine. It was a moment of just walking and talking and, and connecting, and in just a quiet moment towards the end of the day. I think that that kind of can help us understand what God is doing here in these verses. That God is out for his evening walk. It's something that, that he did with regularity. You know, he, God the creator is enjoying his creation. He is going to just enjoy everything that he made. And people think that this was a regular thing that he did and that he, he would have stopped. What's being described here is something that God would have had stops along the way. And visiting with Adam and Eve was a part of what he did. It was a part of the end of the day kind of debrief. Let's just enjoy where we are. And perhaps Adam and Eve regularly uh, joined him in this journey. It was an expression of the relationship. But instead of meeting God, Adam and Eve are off hiding. Again, representing that something has changed in them. And it's in this place of brokenness that God comes to them and he asks the question, where are you? 
not as an accusation, but as an expression of his love, inviting them to step out and to meet with him. Where are you? Now, as I was preparing for preparing this message this week, I was doing reading and looking at a bunch of stuff, uh, articles and different things that other people have written about this, and I came across this blog that reflects on this question, where are you, in three wonderful ways that I thought, these are just too good. And so what we're going to look at right now, I'm not taking any credit for, okay? Internet world, I'm not taking any credit for what we're about to talk about. In fact, we're going to post the link for this blog, so if you want to actually read the author's own words and uh, thoughts in their own words, you, you can. Um, but I think that it's a good way for us to reflect together, you know, on what God is saying if he says to us, where are you today? And so the first question is, where are we in our lives today? You know, God goes, and find, goes looking for Adam and Eve, and they're actually in, you know, they're in a place of hiding. They're in a place of shame. And God asks the question, where are you? And so for us, if God were to ask us, if God were to ask you, if he would ask me the question, where are you, how would you answer that? You know, what would you say life looks like for you right now? What do you got going on? And where are we in terms of our relationship to God, with God, to God? Like, are we, are we feeling close to him? Are we feeling like there's some distance there? Are we kind of like skeptical of him? Where are we? And maybe what are our spiritual practices or the lack of spiritual practices we've got going on? Where are we in our relationship with God? And where are we in terms of our other relationships that we have? You know, our friends, our parents, our coworkers, our kids, you know, our supervisors at work, the people that report to us. What are our relationships at? Where are we in terms of our relationships? Or where are we at in terms of the things that have us brokenhearted or grieving right now? The things that are hard? Or what about the good stuff? You know, where are we in terms of joy? What are we giving thanks for right now? This question, where are you, is an invitation to be self-reflective, to look at our lives and to observe what's going on. It's not, it's not a cue to be self-judgmental and to give ourselves a hard time, but it's about honestly noticing how we're doing right now. And maybe a part of this reflection is to acknowledge, hey, this is where I am right now, and this isn't where I want to be. I want to be over here. This question, where are you, is about asking us to simply notice what's going on in our lives, for better or for worse. And I think this is what God is asking Adam and Eve in our text today, and what he's asking us as well. The second question is, where are we hiding? You know, what parts of our lives are we hiding? Are we trying to hold back? And why are we doing that? And in what ways are we hiding? Are we trying to hide? Is it through busyness? Is it through work? Is it through, you know, just being so sucked into all the things that our kids are doing that we don't have time for anything else? Maybe it's through other distractions like media and social media. Maybe it's through things that give us a high or a rush like alcohol or drugs or, or other online things. Or There's all sorts of things that, that can be a distraction that, that, can get, that can be places that we can hide. And avoid actually being honest about where things are at. And why are we hiding? Do we hide because we're afraid? Because we're embarrassed? Because we're feeling some sort of fear or shame? Is that why we're hiding? Or are we hiding because there's a hard decision to be made? And you know what? We're afraid that if we make that decision, that there's, a, there's going to be a relational fallout. 
Or maybe we're hiding from our past. Or maybe we're hiding from our future. There's lots of things that we can be hiding from. And you know what? This is what we see in Adam and Eve. They are naked and they are afraid, and so they're hiding in the trees, trying to protect themselves, trying to eliminate, the, eliminate vulnerability and risk. This is their best attempt. They're trying to be cover up so they won't be noticed and they won't be seen. And you know what? They think they're hiding from God, but they're not. And we can find ourselves doing the same thing. You know, we think that we're hiding from God or we think that we're hiding from other people, but really we're hiding from ourselves. We're refusing to acknowledge what is true about our circumstances and where we need help. And in the process, we're missing out. We're missing out on uh, on experiencing who we can be and we're missing out on intimacy with God. We're missing out on intimacy with, with, with others. We're just missing out. And so for us, what does hiding look like? Again, as we think about this, let's not rush to judgment. Let's not be judgmental towards ourselves, but let's let this observation be something that provides and grows new opportunities and new possibilities in us. Now, the third way that we can think about this question is using a deep theological term. I'll give it to you, and then we'll explain it, called ollie ollie oxen free. I don't think you actually find this in any theology books, at least I haven't found it yet, but it would be a great one, to tell you the truth. And in case this is a new term for you, you know, it's, it's, it's a term that is used sometimes as kids are playing hide-and-go-seek, right? You know, the seeker has had enough, the other kids are too good at hiding, and so they yell, ollie ollie oxen free, as a way of saying, you can come out from hiding now, the game's over, you're not going to get caught, you're free, come on out. And in a sense, I think this question, where are you, that God is asking to Adam and Eve, is an invitation for them to come out of hiding. Now, as we keep reading from Genesis chapter 3, we do see that there are consequences to their actions, but there are also hints of grace in what comes next. That this is not the end of their relationship with God. It really isn't. In fact, this becomes the starting point of God over and over and over again being the God who comes up close to people who are dealing with sin and suffering and shame. This is God coming close, and this is just the beginning. And so the question, where are you, is the, is the starting point of new possibilities. But for Adam and Eve, it needed to begin with them actually stepping out of hiding. For them to actually come out and to say, this is what has happened. And so for us this morning, what would it mean for us to come out of hiding? And again, we aren't, we aren't talking about us coming out and, and, and hanging our heads in shame or coming out with our excuses ready, you know, to give our reasons for these are the reasons why I, I, I did what I did. But it's a stepping out to be embraced by God, a, a, the God who continues to be committed to us and committed to our well-being regardless of what, we've, what drove us into hiding in the first place. But we do have to step out of hiding first. And so this morning, the question for us to chew on is, where are you? Where are you? 